0: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe, and Hagen-Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Professor Rachel Ankeny about food ethics. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Beth.
1: Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. When I was an undergraduate at university, I studied liberal arts, so I studied everything. And it was through that that I found philosophy, because we obviously um, did quite a lot of philosophy. Um, I thought at first that I wanted to be a lawyer, perhaps, but I realized what I was more interested in was ethics and also philosophy of science. So I transitioned in graduate school to studying uh, history and philosophy of science, especially biology, biomedical sciences, ethics, um, including bioethics, but also feminist perspectives on, on ethics. And that sort of got me where I am today. My teaching typically has been history and philosophy of science, but I sit in a history department as well. So I've done a whole range of history topics relating to history of food and also history of science and technology. And so I'm kind of at the intersection of those fields. What
0: was it that inspired you to study food ethics?
1: Well, I've always loved food, like lots of people, and been really interested in in kind of food traditions and where it comes from and this sort of thing. But I realized once I started reading around that I could put together my interest in ethics with my interest in food and particularly start looking at how people make decisions, especially around kind of their everyday food choices. And I find that really intriguing because I like thinking about why people make the decisions they do. I find it almost more interesting than some of the typical kind of bioethics conundrum that we have, Because they're very exotic, whereas I'm interested in these kind of everyday choices we make that might actually have broader implications.
0: Could you explain exactly what food ethics
1: are? Yeah, I mean, food ethics is sort of a catch-all for the kinds of choices and decisions make associated with their consumption habits, so food, drink, and related things. It might involve kind of broad principles. Um, might, people might choose to be vegans or vegetarians and, and therefore have really specific rules that they follow. Much of the rest of the time, people have kinds of things that they're trying to do, either to help others, like buying local or save you know, um, particular species or protect the environment. And so they try to combine kind of rules of thumb around the decisions they make about what to buy, where to buy it, and what to eat. What do you think it is that parents are really enthusiastic
0: about showing children, especially city children, how fruit and vegetables are grown? But when it comes to explaining about how meat is produced, a lot of parents are very reluctant to discuss this with their children.
1: Yeah, we've done some research on, on this question and I do find it really interesting What we found in our research when we asked people about do they talk to their kids about how meat is produced and why do they or how do they or why don't they is that the split wasn't obviously, for example, along rural and urban lines. Urban parents did tend to be a little bit more reluctant and partially that seemed to be because they weren't as familiar with the production processes and so on. There was a a fear, a lot of them expressed, about turning their children into vegetarians. Rural parents tended to think about it And as part of just the normal process of sort of everyday life, and they could talk about it in the context of some of the farming practices either going on at home or, you know, in a business or somewhere that they were familiar with. I think it is interesting that fruit and vegetables are sort of a more of a comfort zone. And I think that is that aspirational romantic, wanting to get back to the land, wanting to have things fresh and this sort of thing. But meat is is a bit of a conundrum, because I think even those who consume meat are concerned about going there because it involves death and that kind of talking about death is a is a area we're not comfortable with in general let alone if it's killing animals you know for our own consumption so even people who are meat consumers face what we we talk about as as a disjunct or as a sort of cognitive dissonance is the is the kind of psychology term for it that they enjoy meat, they continue to eat it, they think it might be important for their diet, whatever else, but they don't want to think about how the meat's been produced. And so this carries over often into relationships with their children. Do you think that's caused by a lack of education? I had a young boy,
0: probably about 12, and and he said to me, if you don't eat meat, you'll die. Mm. And I, I was actually quite shocked. And I mm. said, oh, uh, how did you get that idea? And do you think that people
1: are just ill-informed about I think people are nervous about eating right. And that's part of what interests me. Like more generally, they're nervous to try and do the right thing, particularly what their kids should eat. And meat is an easy source of protein. You know, it's a very quick and easy way. It's easy to cook. People are comfortable with it, particularly in an Australian culture. And so in their heart of hearts, they know you can get protein from other sources. They just find that much more difficult. They don't know how to cook it. They don't think the kid's going to like it. They're not going to eat it. And therefore they think, I think a lot of people think that they're not feeding their children right unless they're at least giving them some meat. You know, they may not eat red meat or not eat certain things or whatever else. But, you know, the idea, of, for example, a vegetarian diet is terrifying, I think, to a lot of parents um, should the child come home and want to start engaging in that. And, of course, we know you can eat a very healthy diet without meat. It can be more complicated depending. You know, once you get the hang of it, the nutritionists say it's it's you can get as many calories and as many as much protein and nutrients and so on. I think parents also are afraid of of not providing children the very best that they can provide them and so there's a real cultural norm around meat being what you have when you have enough money to be meat uh, to have meat, so especially among migrants and so on. Meat used to be a treat and now it's something that's just an expected norm so that that interlays I think those sort of experiential things end up um interlaced with kind of prejudice against vegetarianism and veganism yeah well
0: well these days there's such a variety of food I mean being vegetarian or or vegan isn't isn't a problem at all but even oh, a friend of mine who well if he if he was still alive he'd probably be um, in his 90s now but when he was seven years old he lived back in in the UK and his father was a butcher and his father decided that he was old enough to be, you know, taken off to work and show showed him how, you know, how he basically earned a living. And he took him in there and, because butchers back in those days, killed the animals, mm. cut it up and uh, did everything themselves. And when he came home, he sat down to the dinner table with meat on his plate and he stood up and he said to his father, I think what you do is wrong. And I'm not going to eat meat anymore. Mm. And his father uh, stood up, took his belt off to give him a thrashing. And his stepmother stepped in and said, giving him a thrashing won't do anything. If that's his opinion, you can't take that away mm. from him. And from that day on, him and his stepmother were best of friends. <laughs> and she always gave him second helpings of dessert. There you go. But, you, but you think about it uh, back in, you know, in the 40s or 50s. Mm. Mm. And there wasn't very much to eat anyway, Mm. but Norm survived really well. He was Mm. always a very healthy person Mm. on a vegetarian diet back then. Mm. Mm. So he was, uh, when when I sort of met up with him in an animal rights group, I mean, he'd been vegetarian for much longer than any of us Mm. and he'd never had any ill health effects. It Mm. was quite Mm. quite the opposite actually. Mm. Do you think that because of... I uh, increased advertising campaigns such as Animals Australia the television advertising they do and do you do you think it's changed consumer attitudes
1: towards the production of meat I think people are more concerned about how their meat is being produced. I don't necessarily think that those ads have caused you know a lot of people to go over to being vegetarians or vegans or whatever else. Social media has had a big influence too, which we've seen in a lot of the research we drew in my food values research group. But I do think that those sorts of ads and also more generally kind of the activist activity and so on – have caused at least some people to start asking questions about the modes of production. And so differences, I mean, we know that free-range eggs, for example, are much more popular and much more in demand than they were even a few years ago. There's all sorts of issues about free-range eggs and about what counts as free-range and whatever else. But there has been an increasing market share. I think the other thing that's really been a driver recently, Beth, is this increased attention to environmental change. And so I think people are going more towards at least having meatless days or reducing the amount of meat or whatever else. And so the environmental drivers, combined with this awareness of different production regimes and different standards of animal welfare and different kinds of production, have caused people to start thinking about their choices. It doesn't mean they've stopped eating meat or doesn't mean vegetarians have started eating meat, but... Just means that people are are looking a little bit more closely at all of that, which means retailers are jumping into that niche, right, and filling filling the blank with lots of uh, labeling and terminology and so on. Some of which is meaningful, and some of which really doesn't tell you a lot. Yeah. Could you explain about genetically modified food? That's a big one. Okay, so genetic modification in sort of primitive ways, of course, goes back a long way. Pedigree dogs, orchids, so on. They're all genetic, genetically modified in some sense from an original, but that's through really upper-level kinds of choices. The kind of genetic modification that people usually are talking about these days has to do with literally making changes in the genome of a plant, for example, in order for it to have different kinds of characteristics. And it's much more precise. It also is you know, laboratory-based. It's very different than, I think, at least the hybridization that sort of went on in the old days. Basically... There are a very limited number of things on the market. Certainly here in Australia, there's more in other places that have a genetic modification, so a deletion or an addition to somehow improve the crop or the the vegetable or fruit or whatever it is. In some cases, it's things like papaya was made virus-resistant because it was going to be killed off. It was dying at a great rate in Hawai'i. In some cases, it's um, more resistant to heat or more resistant to saline, more resistant to certain things. In other cases, it's being modified in order to enhance it. So to give um, nutrition fortification or something like this. And so the famous case there is so-called golden rice, which helps with blindness and has been used in parts of uh, Asia in particular. People a lot of people are concerned about genetically modified food because they see it as different than so-called natural foods. That being the case, you know many fruits and vegetables, all fruits and vegetables in many ways, have been changed since the beginning of time. There's been a lot of modification going on. I think there's more people who are nervous because there are multinational companies involved, and they're wondering you know, what the motivation is here. Is there money to be made out of it? And there's also concerns about long term implications. So has there been adequate assessment of any potential risks in the longer term? In our research, we find there's also a lot of people who don't think that it's highly problematic, so long as it's being done for, you know, so called good reason. And here too, I think what the modification is for really makes a difference. And environmental concerns are likely to play into people's changing opinions on GM. In particular, if we had crops that were saline resistant, drought resistant, and all sorts of things. People might be much more interested in that than they are, say, modifications that make a tomato more resilient and easier to ship. Um, that's not really that important to us. But we do, we do think we want to be able to have crops here in Australia, and that some of these modifications might be helpful in that regard. What type of roles does
0: food play in the maintenance of tradition, culture, and identity.
1: Food is really central to all those things. We know that, particularly among migrants, but even more generally, in groups, people come together around food. And this idea of conviviality, this sort of coming together around food is really central to lots of groups. So So food is really central to lots of traditions, be it religious traditions, or cultural traditions, or even just community traditions, particularly because people gather around food. Food often has a role in celebrations. It has a role in um, major events of life, you know, from birthdays to funerals and whatever else. We also find, though, that food can both bring people together and, and push them apart. And so some scholars of food studies here at the University of Melbourne, in fact, have co- coined the term um, culinary xenophobia that says that food sometimes serves as a pushing apart of the other and in particular, that food can be used as a way to sort of mark off a place not to go or how not to do things. And so in some form, we're seeing that at the moment with uh, fears of coronavirus and people not patronizing so-called you know, Asian restaurants or Chinese restaurants in particular, and this idea that food comes with risk and that that ties into how you identify yourself and how you develop your sort of boundaries and so that's that's one of the other reasons I'm really interested in food because it is this kind of symbolic and actual driver of all sorts of behaviors and identity claims and culture. Do you think that Australian consumers have an awareness and acceptance of insects as food? That's an interesting one. So we've also been doing some research at Adelaide around this kind of um insects insect eating kind of awareness. People seem to be a little bit more aware that it's out there as a niche thing. And particularly in Australia, because people, you know, have tended to travel to different parts of Asia where insect eating is at least part of part of the diet. It's something tourists sometimes see and whatever else. What they don't seem to have as much of an awareness of is kind of what everyday consumption of insects might end up looking like. And so in the study that I've been doing with some colleagues, we sort of looked at what are the inhibitors or the potential drivers for people Accepting insects as food. As you probably know, there's been a lot of uh, international organizations that have come out saying, look, this is an excellent protein source. It would be a really good way to increase protein in diets and actually also solve a problem with waste and whatever else. And so there are sort of companies and organizations looking to increase insect consumption. What we found is people are interested in eating insects so long as they don't have to look at them, basically, is the short story. If they're ground up into sort of a powder you could put in your smoothie or you could throw on top of something else, they're much more likely to consume it. But the big dividing factor is whether people are what are called neophobes or neophils. So are they interested in new things or are they scared of new things? And people who tend to be more generally scared of new things, so they're neophobic, just aren't that interested in insects. People who are interested in new things tend to try new things anyway, tend to be more open even to consuming insects and seeing the insect. But I think if I had to predict, it's insects are much more likely to end up ground up in other sorts of things rather than being eaten as individual protein sources.
0: I remember when I was quite young, I was reading *The Good Earth*, <laughs> and <laughs> that's that's when, when I sort of think of insect eating. That's the first thing that comes yeah. to mind, yeah. and how there was a lotus plague. And so he he just thought, well, if they're eating my crops, I'm going to eat them. And, yeah. and that was a long time ago, before I was vegetarian. And I thought, well, that's actually quite a good idea. Yeah. And yeah. I, I thought, well, why not? I mean, you know, because they're quite large insects, yeah. and if you got them all and sort of of fried them up and yeah. cook them at least. fritters sure. or something, yeah. Yay. But
1: that's interesting, too, because we actually started asking vegetarians in particular, less vegans, but vegetarians, you know, which side would insects fall on? So there's lots of people who are vegetarians, but sometimes they eat fish. I know that's not strictly vegetarian, but, you know, people who are in the sort of middle zone where insects would fall for them, right? Would this be something they would consider, particularly if it's good for the environment and it was a high-protein source? And people fall kind of on different sides. I think a lot of people in Australia aren't really strict say vegetarians, they you know, they're pescatarians or they mostly eat vegetables but they'll eat lots of differentiation. And we even have in our research people for example, who eat only eat kangaroo because they think it's you know it's been it was wild it was hunted as long as it's killed humanely that ticks the boxes for them but otherwise they're vegetarians you know so it all depends on why you're a vegetarian which is again part of the interesting part of the interesting part of it when you think about food ethics is all the different reasons people might their choices so what are some of the different ways people different reasons people
0: are vegetarian.
1: Yeah, I mean, traditionally, there's sort of three different reasons. One was for health reasons that Either they got told by a doctor or they just simply felt better when they when they didn't eat meat. And roughly, at least traditionally, it was sort of divided into thirds, usually, of, of vegetarians, just for the sake of argument. The second would be animal welfare kinds of considerations. So those people might differ in the details about sort of where they draw the line. Um, and that's why sometimes you end up with, with fish, depending on what they think about consciousness and sensation of pain and whatever. And then... There always are sort of spiritual or religious vegetarians, either organized religion or just more generally kind of feeling like they don't want to cross that line, but don't necessarily have deep beliefs or understandings attached to the animal ethics side of it. I think these days we see, I mean, of course, in Australia being a migrant country with some people with religious beliefs associated with vegetarianism, we have some. But these days increasingly we have a lot of people who are doing it for various ethical reasons. They even if it's not about consciousness or pain, they don't like the way production animals are raised. Many of those people make a decision not to be a vegetarian but only have small amounts of meat produced in certain ways. Yeah, vegans tend to have obviously a much more a bit more extreme consistency about no animal products whatsoever. You know, that's the main distinction as you know. And so that would include anything, you know, milk Uh, milk, cheese, butter, uh, leather, the whole gamut. And there it's about as much about animal rights or animal consciousness and pain as it is also about not using something an animal produced without some sort of consent or permission or something like this.
0: Yeah, look, it's interesting, the the fish debate, because I Mm. remember when I was working in the Animal Liberation Office many years ago, we had a protest and it was a protest against the killing of fish and we had quite a few members calling up that were quite angry Mm. and insisting they were vegetarian but they ate fish. And I thought it probably has something to do with the fish aren't given the same legal status as Mm. other animals even Mm. though fish is an animal. And, uh, you know, when I I said to them, well, you can hear – a cow or a pig or a lamb screaming and you can see that they're they're feeling fear and and pain and I said but with fish just because they don't scream doesn't mean it isn't murder Mm. and it really made people think about it and Mm. people fish can't express their feelings in a way that we can actually relate to but it's fairly obvious you know if you get a fish and pull it out of the water it's flapping around it's Mm. obviously in a
1: great deal of distress isn't it Mm. yeah I mean and and that's it's not unique to Australia but there is for some reason in Australia maybe because we are surrounded by water there seems to be more people who are vegetarians but for fish which I find really odd I also think, I mean, that that the numbers are so much greater. But the other one then is tricky is is seafood. And I do think, without being sarcastic, a lot of people I know change their eating habits around seeing octopuses and and other sort of nature shows about the intelligence of some of these things. And so they'll draw the line in different places around, you know, octopus and cuttlefish are, are off, but down at clams are different. So people, it just all depends on, yeah, why they find it morally problematic you know what they're going to have in and what they're going to have out as i said you know we do see increasing numbers of people who eat wild game because it kind of ticks the boxes about uh reduction of suffering and if they're feral anyway and, and whatever else but i think all of that is changing you know the more information that's out there it it changes people's views because they're able to get more data on whatever it is that they're concerned about be it be it that the animal is suffering at the end, you know as it's killed or it's not suffering or it's killed humanely, you know what does that look like that's what's shaping I think people's choices
0: in regards to having a reasonably healthy diet there's, there seems to be just so much conflicting information out there on which foods are good for you and which foods are bad for you. Do you think that having too much information can be
1: confusing for people? It's definitely confusing, and I think, I mean, social media with all these influencers and whatnot putting out all these diets, we really have seen some pretty unhealthy diets out there for people um, relying on sort of certain kinds of understandings of what's good and what's bad that, in fact, aren't very nutritious, particularly for children or infants, was a a really, uh, the paleo diet, for example, for infants, very problematic. What I do think is the case, though, is that there also is too much kind of elitism and kind of preaching at people about what's good for them and that doesn't really get the message across to people about eating healthy. The most reasonable nutritional advice, you know, that I see is don't overdo it, you know, in any one category or whatever else. The idea that you can occasionally have a treat or have something that, strictly speaking, isn't a five-star sort of thing, but it all is about balance. You know, that's a very ancient kind of philosophical idea, but trying to achieve that kind of balance in your diets the most important thing, and imparting those values to your kids, rather than having foods that are just, you know, out of out of reach. That makes them even more attractive, of course, if you have kids. And so I think people need to also kind of take much more feel more empowered to make their own choices. We know there's a ton of food waste um, at the moment. And in part, that's because people get all aspirational about, you know, eating more vegetables or trying the next best thing. And then they're not sure what to do with it, they don't get around to it. And we end up we have huge amounts of food waste anyway. But that food waste, you know, has really been tied into a lot of aspirational kind of eating, or purchasing at very least. And that being elitist and pushing certain things is, you know, must haves, is not really a good way to help people shape their diets.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already spoken about?
1: Mm, I guess, I mean, there's a few other projects that we've been thinking about that are interesting, I think, from a philosophical point of view. One is around halal meat, um, and I think that intersects with the culture identity kinds of questions. There's been a real anti-halal pushback in this country because of kind of understandings of, of what halal slaughter is. So leaving aside that some people think that that slaughter is is bad full stop because they're vegetarians or animal rights or whatever else, halal slaughter is actually the norm in this country, but it's been used as a kind of wedge for being anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant or whatever else. And so we've got some work looking at kind of understandings of halal that I think could end up being quite interesting because it gets into this zone of how we all get along in this complex country, but also what are our expectations of a good death um, if indeed we're going to have meat. The second one intersects with where are we headed with, with our diets and in particular with increased concern about um, the environment and climate change and so on, which has to do with plant-based protein products. And those are on the increase currently, but many people find them really problematic in some ways. And the question is, are these alternatives that people are going to tend to embrace because they're easier to use and starting, say, from scratch? You know, if you have a pre-prepared plant-based protein burger or something like this that tastes good and is ready to go, is this a way that people are going to be transitioning to reduced or elimination of meat? Or is it not going to be a good segue? Because in effect, you're eating things that look like meat. So I think even some vegetarians and vegans find those kind of products really problematic because they are made to resemble meat. So are we just reinforcing kind of the same habits? It's a very Buddhist kind of concern. But nonetheless, and then there are concerns, of course, among meat producers and others within the food industry that these products are taking the niche that was formerly occupied by meat products and so there's even been a fight around the use of the word mince because are you allowed to use mince when it mince refers to meat except of course there's fruit mince anyway or you know how do you even label the products so that you're not deceiving the customer but um, you're communicating kind of what its value is and what it's designed to replace or be so we're doing some research in that um space as well looking at media representations of uh, plant-based products and consumer kind of reactions to it. So always lots going on.
0: Oh, that sounds, that sounds very interesting. Thanks so much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me, Bob. And I've been speaking with Professor Rachel Ankeny about food ethics. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.